That is page 708 in the church Bibles. Mark chapter 2. And we're going to read the opening verses this morning. It's good to see you. The kids have a lot to say, don't they, this morning? <laughs> Okay, verse 1, Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, remember he began his ministry there, now he's back, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat, and and the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. It's interesting that throughout the rest of Mark, every miracle account You'll never see what you'll see there at the end of verse 12, that everyone was amazed and they praised God. And all the other accounts, they are um, amazed, they're mystified, they're, they're excited, but they never praise God because every other miracle account is not tied so directly to the gospel as this one. So when they say at the end, we've never seen anything like this, uh, what they're saying is true. They've never seen the gospel, um, if you would, portrayed like that. Okay. Let's pray and let's ask God for his help this morning. Father, we do pray that the Holy Spirit will help us now and be pleased to be our teacher. We pray as well for strength to be able to think properly, humility, to learn gladly, and the active ministry of the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of your beloved Son in order that we might increasingly see everything as you see things. And therefore, Father, do everything as you would do them, even as we glory now in the great work of the cross, the forgiveness of our sins. And so it is for Jesus' sake that we humbly ask this. Amen. This past Wednesday evening was the 25th annual ESPY Awards, which, if you don't know, is a sports award show. 
and it's put on by the sports network ESPN. And the reason why I say that, a portion of that program is set aside for um, awareness and try, to try to raise money for cancer research because so many talented um, athletes have either dealt with cancer or have died from cancer. And the gentleman who really got this started, I suspect some of you know, his name is uh, Jim Volvano. He was the college basketball coach, I think it was North Carolina State. And he had cancer, and eventually he would die from cancer. Before his death, he he gave, in in my opinion, um, a talk at the very first ESPY Awards. It was 1993, and he ended his talk by saying this. And by the way, you should know this. In the first service this morning, there was a person who has cancer. This is the first time they've been here, so it's interesting. But anyway, this is what he said. Cancer can take away all my abilities, but it cannot touch my mind. It cannot touch my heart. And it cannot touch my soul. It was a very beautiful moment. You could watch it the moment on YouTube, the entire speech. It's not very long. And of course, to some degree, he was exactly right. Because yes, in one sense, a cancer cannot touch our minds. It cannot touch our hearts. And it cannot touch our souls. However, there is something that Jesus Christ would have me tell you this morning. Sin can. More specifically, unforgiven sin can touch our heart and can touch our mind and can touch our soul. And worse, it can ruin your eternity. Because sin, humanity's rebellion towards God's truth and towards God's ways, that's the reason why we even have to deal with cancer to begin with. You see, the moment cancer became possible is when sin came into this world. It's when Adam and Eve defied God's truth. They they made up their own truth and they decided to go their own way. And you can read of that in the second part of Romans chapter 5 and in the opening chapters of Genesis. But anyway, when sin came into the world, what God said would happen, it did happen. The world became broken. And then sin, along with two of its consequences, disease and death, was introduced into this world. And it will never be taken away from this world as we have it now. Therefore, while cancer is limited and every disease is limited, all it can do is take your life. Sin against God, left unforgiven, it will devastate your life. And apart from repentance and faith in Jesus, it will leave you, the Bible says so clearly, it will leave you forever condemned before God forever under his wrath because of sin, and it will leave you for all eternity locked out of heaven. So cancer is horrible. We hate it. I hate it. But let me tell you something far worse. And according to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is humanity's first and greatest problem. It is the problem which is at the root of every problem, every sickness, every disease, every form of wickedness, and every evil issue that we struggle with as mere men and women. And it's a problem right now for roughly four and a half billion plus people in our world, some of which you know who you know and some of whom you're related to. It is the problem of sin left unforgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the greatest problem. That's the greatest problem we'll ever face. So oftentimes in a crisis, people will say to you, well, at least you got your health. 
okay, I kind of get that, but we will not always have our health, will we? And Jesus is saying here in this story, there is something far more valuable than your health because the Christian hope, it doesn't come from health. It comes from the promise of a resurrected future that is ours, but it's only in Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, you ought to be rejoicing in your reality. Your sins are forgiven. The problem, which is the root of every one of your other problems, your greatest problem has been dealt with decisively. And now, more good news, your most important relationship that you'll ever have, the relationship between you and a holy God, because of Jesus, you can say with absolute certainty, certainty, it's just fine. It is absolutely terrific. But if you're not in Christ and you're like unsure, Jesus said he can help you. He can help you. In fact, he says he's the only answer for you. Now, we're in the middle of July in a summer in northern Minnesota. So I understand that you might not be like totally excited by the reality that your sins are forgiven if you're in Christ. And so I know that for many Christians, if you tell them the biggest problem you have is unforgiven sin and because of Christ it's been dealt with, you will get sometimes a, like a, a yeah, right. You might not get it with lips, but you'll get it in the heart, Right? Okay, uh, our sins are forgiven. Uh, but you know what? X is right, happening right now. And he- X is so major. So right now, to know that my sins are forgiven, it's not making me hap, hap, happy. I mean, you seem to be happy, but, but I'm not hap, hap, happy about it. Because, you know, we, we tend to our shame. We tend to try to measure our life by dollars and cents, by material things, by accomplishments, you know, the quality of our health, the quality of our life. Uh, I don't know, free trips and tips and all that kind of stuff. But, but not usually we measure the life that we've been given by the fact that our sins have been forgiven. So I know that. I also know it's really hard for some people to believe what I'm about ready to read to you from Tim Keller, who posted this on a tweet or in a tweet last week. This is what he says. He says, the gospel, if it is really, really believed, removes neediness, the need to be constantly respected constantly appreciated and well regarded the need to have everything in your life go your way and go well the need to have power over others all of these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of the glorious God delighting in you with all his being is just that it's a concept and nothing more Our hearts don't leap. Our hearts don't believe it. So they operate in a default mode. So he says, if you really want to change, you must let the gospel teach you. That is to train, discipline you over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you, right? So your sins are forgiven. That's the biggest issue you'll ever have. That's the root of all your problems. And it's been taken care of. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel seep down deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation and changes your mind and changes your attitude. So I know that might be hard for people to embrace because some of us, we don't know how to live unless we have some issue going on. Something which the gospel has already dealt with. And, and, and so we need, we need that thing to be happening or at least we don't think we're moving along in grace. Or we have some deep need And that need has not been met. 
and we say to ourselves, I will not be happy until that need is met. I'll never know fullness. I'll never know rejoicing like I ought to rejoice until that need is met and the need is not the forgiveness of your sins. So I know that. Now bear with me. I also know that the fact this world is so broken and so mangled up that it becomes very easily to create a line of thinking, flawed though it may be, but it's still there. That says something like the British actor Stephen Fry said in an interview in 2015, Irish television. Listen to what he said. He's an atheist and he looks at the world and he sees it's broken and mangled up. And this is what he says. If there were a God and we came face to face, I would say to him, bone cancer and children. What's that about? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault. It's not right. It is utter, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God, he's still alive by the way, who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? You could have easily made a creation in which these things did not exist. But don't, don't be too hard on him. We should be very concerned about the undeserved suffering in the world. However, the Bible puts forward a picture because of sin of undeserved happiness apart from repentance and faith in Jesus. So I know all those things. So when Jesus says, your biggest problem is sin left unforgiven, many people are like, you know, eh, But here's the thing. The world as we have it is not the world as God made it. What we have now is the result of the free choice of the first two people on this planet who rebelled against God, thought they knew better, and sinned. And this sin has infected everyone in this room, beginning with myself. And any honest person would tell you, I'll tell you, I'm not proud to say it, but I sin in some way every day. Hence, when Jesus tells me here, um, your sins, son, are forgiven. And that that is my greatest need, which is the picture that he's painting. I want to pay attention. I want to pay attention. Now, if you've been with us in our studies, remember, Jesus is focused on the preaching of the gospel. It ought to be coming uh, easy to understand why that's the case. Remember, there was a man with leprosy and he came to Jesus and he begged Jesus to heal him. Jesus healed him. And Mark said that Jesus was filled with compassion that he did heal him. Directly following the healing, remember Jesus told the man, don't say anything to anyone. But what happened? He told everyone. He told everyone. The reason why Jesus said don't tell anyone is because Jesus understood that his real mission, the preaching of the gospel, to go to the cross, can be easily skewed by, you know, the traveling miracle roadshow. So Jesus is filled with compassion. He takes the man and heals him, but he's also filled with the spirit and with wisdom. And that's why he says, zip it. Don't tell anyone anything because that is not why I've come. I've come to proclaim the good news. And what you'll see there is because the man's disobedience, chapter 1, verse 45, your Bible's open, the progress of the ministry of Jesus is hindered. There's no dip in his popularity. The last sentence makes that clear, but still progress is hindered. So we'll go right to our points this morning. The first one is Jesus knew what was needed. So after a few days, verse 1 tells us Jesus goes back home to Capernaum. So what Mark tells us is that Capernaum was the home base for Jesus. We're not told where Jesus' actual physical home was, 
But we are told that Capernaum was the place that Jesus called home. And as a result of Jesus going back, given all that had happened last time in Capernaum, the whole town, they, they decided they needed to be there. That's verse 2. You see that there? The crowd which is gathered is so large that there's no room inside. We get that. But also there's no room left outside the door as well. And notice what Mark tells us Jesus is doing. He tells us that he preached the word to them. La le ton logon. He preached the word to them. Now, why do I say it the way that I say it? Because that little phrase is a technical phrase which is used all throughout the New Testament. And so by the time you get to 2 Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, this is what he says. Timothy, look, people are going to be interested in all kinds of things. They're going to have itching ears and they're going to want to hear everything except the gospel. They're going to actually gather around lots of people, preachers, to tell them things. But you, Timothy, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 2. Timothy, I want you to do what Jesus did. Preach the word to them. The exact same phrase in the Greek. Okay, what is the word that Timothy and Jesus, if you would, would to preach? Chapter 1, verse 15. Remember, it's one of our favorite phrases so far. The time has come. This is what Jesus said. The kingdom is near. You need to repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Why? Why such emphasis? Because without kneeling to the gospel truth, you're still in your sins and you remain unforgiven. Now, as you think about this, in Capernaum, although Jesus was the one doing the preaching, there was no signs of repentance and faith. You get that? Jesus is the preacher and nobody's coming to repent and believe. The majority of the people are fascinated by Jesus, but they're not coming to grips with his message. Miracles, great. Message, not so great. It's so bad that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this about his hometown. Chapter 11, verse 34. He says that at the judgment, it's going to be worse for Capernaum than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah because of such unbelief in Capernaum. So again, Jesus was the one doing the preaching, right? Everybody ought to be coming to Jesus. They're not. And if you think about it, it's a pretty contemporary theme, right? You can gather a crowd for miracles. You can gather a crowd for meals. You can gather a crowd for music. But it's hard, harder to gather a crowd for the message. The miracles that Jesus performed, it wasn't some kind of program to be enacted by the church. It was rather a window into the future reality That was coming, which was supposed to be, if you would, preached by the church. In other words, I am so sorry. Everyone is not going to be healed. But I'm so happy to tell you. In fact, I'm compelled to tell you everyone in Christ can be forgiven. And therefore, the promise post-death of a new forever body, which will never know disease, that... That can happen. And the key is Jesus. The key is repentance and faith in Jesus. So Jesus does do miracles, but he does them in his compassion, in his compassion, not for people to simply talk about it with no gospel attachment. So clearly Jesus knew what was needed. Verse three, if your Bible's open, you'll see this. He's preaching and all of a sudden some men 
which means it was a whole lot more than four men, right? Four men were the only guys who carried the paralytic man, but apparently this paralytic had lots of friends. And what good friends they were. Question, what do Christian friends do? Good Christian friends do. Well, good Christian friends take their unconverted friends to Jesus some way. Good friends take the message of the cross to them. That's what good friends do. And that, in part, is what these good friends are doing here. There is a Brazilian proverb which says, Amigos valen mas que dinero. Friends are worth more than money. And, of course, it's true here. The four determined that they would get this man to Jesus. Okay, the crowd was so large, the door was blocked. Someone must have said, it was probably the engineer of the four, let's go through the roof. Right? So the roof at that time was essentially vegetation. It was bits and pieces of branches and probably some clay worked in, maybe overlaid with clay, maybe even some clay tiles. And so it wasn't a real big deal for them to, if you would, get through the work, you know, physical strength. But it's still a big deal that they actually determined to do that. And so... Since it was Capernaum, right? So you get everybody's packed in inside the room and there's people packed outside and the guys are carrying the body. Since it was Capernaum, I had no doubt thinking that people were like, hey, hey, wait, wait a minute. Where are you going? We were in line first here. We were in line first. Get back. And the guy's like, no, it's okay. We're going to go to the roof. And so they go to the roof. So they have to think through this, right? So they're digging through the roof. So what happens when you dig through a first century roof? Well, little bits and pieces of the roof are falling down. So Jesus is preaching, you know, just like I'm preaching, and then here comes the stuff. Now think about that for a moment or two. I was thinking, okay, here are the things that distract me when I'm preaching. One of the things that distract me is when someone over here gets up, and then everybody here does like this. They look at the person, and I'm like, hey, hey, back over here. Or someone gets up over there, and, and then, oh, that, no, back, yeah, there you go, see? Someone gets up over there, and then I'm like, over here. Last Sunday, there was a little tiny ant when I was preaching. Just, just right there. He had to die. He had to. I took it. It was, it was done. Right? You should know this about me. So if like there's ever trash like right here when I'm preaching, oh, oh man, I am so like OCD that I've like, got to figure out a way where I can get the trash picked up while I'm preaching without anybody knowing. So the roof is falling apart and Jesus lets the whole thing unfold. He doesn't stop anything. And I want you to know then that the man apparently is right in front of Jesus. And if the people of Capernaum are true to form, what happens? It's like, oh, here we go. The sermon's over. Woo-hoo! Here comes the show. The guy, body, do it, Jesus. Just do it. You've been doing it all day. Do it. And the four friends is like, oh, just wave your hand over the guy, Jesus. It's going to be great. He's going to walk. Just wave your hand. But what happens? Well, look at your Bible, verse 5. Son, that's a term of endearment. Son, your sins are forgiven. It's written in the present active infinitive. A present action done by Jesus Christ so decisive that it will go on forever. In other words, this man will, not, will never know um, what it means to not be forgiven by God. Present active Infinity. I am acting on you, Jesus says, this agency. I am giving you grace. You are forgiven forever. Now, the friends were probably thinking, we brought this guy here so you could say that? 
Jesus, we brought him here for a visible change. We did not bring him here for some invisible forgiveness. What is that? And surely the crowds are thinking, Jesus, the guy can't walk. That's his problem. I mean, what are you doing? This actually, it it might be rude, Jesus. Why are you saying, your sins are forgiven? Now, there's nothing to suggest here that there was some secret sin that this man had. And that's why he couldn't walk. The book of Job, the, the gospel of Luke, chapter 13, tells us, don't make those assumptions. Sin is the reason why we have disease. And some sin can lead to disease. For example, we know that um, sexual sin can lead to uh, STDs. But here, that's not the case. So the reason Jesus said what he said was because Jesus was putting his finger on every person's problem, on this man's problem, and the vast majority of people in Capernaum's problem, the need for forgiveness. So he was showing that the man's real need in his life was not sickness of body, but sickness of soul. And because Jesus does everything well, he addresses first things first. So I don't want you to think that Jesus is not concerned about his physical condition, this man's physical condition, because the rest of the text bears that he is very, very concerned. Just like Jesus is concerned for your health and and your marriage and your job and your kids and fears and insecurities. Jesus is very concerned about all those things. But first things first. Jesus wants to give you what matters most. And the one thing that matters most to Jesus is that we're restored to a relationship with God, a God who made us for himself through the forgiveness of our sins. Which, now stay with me, if you think about that, if you think that out, it means you can have a very unimpressive life in the eyes of the world. You could be like a nobody. Your kids, like nobody. And, and your, your aunts and uncles, nobody. But Jesus would say, in light of eternity, look how rich you are. Now, we don't always believe that, do we? We don't. Because a lot of our prayers to Jesus are the things, the material. It's fine. Pray them. But Jesus would say to you, hey, look how rich you are. Look how good you got it. Now, do you believe that? Do I believe that? If everything I had was taken away from me tonight, could I say what Job said? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could I say, Job chapter 14, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I hope I could. I'm not going to be like Peter and go, oh yeah, I can. Jesus is full of compassion. He says to this paralytic, your biggest problem is bigger than you know. It's not your legs. It's your sin. Number one, Jesus knows what's needed. Number two, Jesus knows what they're thinking. That's verse six, right? Jesus' words are met with immediate trouble. The trouble doesn't come from the devil. That was chapter one. The trouble doesn't come from the demonic world. That was in the synagogue in chapter one. The trouble comes from the last people you would think that would cause Jesus trouble. These were the guys who knew the Old Testament, experts in the law. 
And so you would think that they would be thinking biblically, right? And maybe like Psalm 103, verse 2, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. But as Mark makes it clear that as the whole gospel unfolds, the hardest battle that Jesus will fight throughout the rest of the book is not going to be from the devil. It's going to be from the religious establishment. It's going to be from those who think they're always right and think they're very powerful and they have significance. And if you get a good Christian history book and you read all throughout history, what you're going to find is that they never die. (laughs) They never die. They're always in the way of gospel progression. Always. So these men who are opposing Jesus... Um, say these things in their mind, but of course Jesus knows all things and how comfortable it must have been for them when what he says openly was what they were thinking privately. Verse 7b. Verse 7b. Only God can forgive sins. Well, okay, let's stop. That's correct, right? Only God can forgive sin. That's their theology. Great theology. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Theology, fine. Their deduction is wrong. Because what they say is, therefore, this man must be guilty of blasphemy. Now, why would they say that? I mean, have they ever considered, okay, he was doing everything well, all these miracles and the message. He was right in line perfectly with the Old Testament and his work. Why did they just jump to that conclusion so quickly? Why can't they think, okay, let's slow down a little bit. This guy could be God in flesh. Let me help you here. You should know that miracles of this kind... The century before Jesus, the century after Jesus, the century of Jesus did not happen. Secondary history tells us that there's just two men. This is history outside the church. There's just two men other than Jesus who did miracles. And of the two of these men only, or excuse me, of the two men, they each only did one miracle. Now, we're not talking about the apostles right now. We're talking about Jesus and these two men. The man who lived the century before Jesus was a man named Honi the circle drawer. This is what he did. There was a drought in the place that he lived. So he drew a circle in the ground. He got in the circle and he prayed for rain. And he said, I'm not leaving until rain comes. Secondary history tells us rain did come. That was his only miracle. The latter was a man named Hena Bas Dosa. He lived in Galilee He lived the century after Jesus, and he prayed for um, the rabbi Gamaliel, and he prayed for his son who was desperately sick. When he prayed, the boy was immediately recovered and well. Okay, so all of history tells us there's only two miracles, rain miracle, boy miracle. Here's why I tell you that. One, all these guys, they were praying for help. Jesus was not doing that. He was speaking directly to the problem. And the problem was taken away. 38 times in the gospel, Jesus speaks and he is heard. The second reason is that because the fact there was no miracles happening, the teachers of the law should have been a lot more like, oh my, (laughs) okay, this is new. No one's done this before. And, And then, if you would, thought through their Old Testament. But of course they didn't. They went right to their own mind and jumped to their own conclusions because their heart was so desperately evil. So Jesus knows what they're thinking. He begins a dialogue. The final point, he does everything well. 
So there it is in verse 9. Jesus says, okay, what's easier to say to this paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. Well, clearly it's easier to say what? Your sins are forgiven. On some level, it's easier. Because how could you verify the fact that the man's sins were forgiven? You'd have to wait for all eternity, right? To decide. So it's harder to say, take up your mat and walk. Because if that doesn't happen then Jesus is immediately exposed as mockery, right? Ha, 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 you didn't do it. So Jesus, having said what in the minds of everyone there, what is easier? Your sins are forgiven. Having said that, he says what is harder, at least in the minds of the people there, he says, take your mat and walk. Verse 10 but that you will know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says what he says. Let's just stop for a second. Is it really that easy for Jesus to pronounce forgiveness over sins? Because the Jesus who pronounces that forgiveness is going to have to go to the cross. He is going to have to pay a great cost. He was more than glad to pay it but he's going to have to pay it. And apparently Jesus was willing to pay because he loves sinners and he wants to free them and he wants to give them what matters most. And by the way, take up your mat and walk. And of course the man walks. Jesus does everything well. Now we're going to end here, but we're going to end saying two things. Let's just play this game in our minds, if you would, okay? Let's say this paralytic came behind this box and was going to talk to us. I think he would say something like this. It's great to be with you. I remember that day when I was healed as if it was yesterday. I really wanted to walk. And when I was healed by Jesus, I got on my feet and walked down the street walking and leaping, praising God. It was so great. I never thought I'd walk again. But when I left that room, I went back into life full tilt with my wife and my kids. Oh man, it was great. But you know, it wasn't too far along after my healing that my wife and I got in a huge argument. And I screamed a whole lot at my kids for no good reason. And I told a lie to my neighbor. And I was so mad at one of my friends that for some time I didn't forgive him. I even got mad at God a little because life just didn't seem like it was very satisfying. I was so happy about my legs at first, but then the happiness kind of wore off. And when it did, I began to understand why Jesus said what he said to me first, that my sins were forgiven. I'm so glad he did that because you know I've been with Jesus for a very long time. For some 2,000 years, I've been with Jesus and I know Now, why he forgave my sins first. It was the most important thing I needed. You see, at the time, I was just thinking how great it would be to walk and how things would be different and I would be different. But now I know of the two great blessings Jesus gave me on that day. The spiritual was by far the greatest. You see, loved ones, Jesus may help you 
in the ways that you are asking him right now. But he may not. But don't fret over this. Because what he will do is what he came to do. Restore you to a relationship with God who made you. So, in other words, in the mind of Jesus, it may be better for you to lay flat on your back and go to heaven than to dance your way through life and go to hell. That's why Jesus said to this man, Son, first things first. Your sins are forgiven. Final thing. I read this to you before, but I'm sure you've forgotten. It's an article from the Village Voice. It's a lady, uh, Cynthia Himmel, and she's uh, an atheist, but she lives in New York. And over the years, she knew a whole lot of, uh, of people who were struggling to be writers, actors, actresses, and they were trying to make it big, and so they were working in bars, and they were working in restaurants, and she you know, developed friendships with them. And eventually, a whole lot of these people actually did make it big, and they became famous. And so she began to reflect on this. And so she writes, listen to what she says, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after, each of them became famous. They wanted to take an overdose. Because you see, that giant thing they were striving for. Now think with me. Because we all have this thing. That thing that was going to make everything okay. That was going to make their life bearable. That was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness happened. And they were still them. And the disillusionment turned them into howling and intolerable people. Now again, this is what she says as an atheist. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to die. Unless, let me add to this, unless... Your deepest wish is to have your sins forgiven. And so Jesus says to the man, and he says to anyone who listen, I may not give you what you want, but I will gladly give you what you need. And I want you to trust me. What's the one thing What's the one thing that you think that you need? And if you get it, then you'll be happy and content and at peace and satisfied and righteous. Here's the answer Jesus would give us. The forgiveness of our sins. Homework assignment? You may do it, you may not. Get a piece of paper, draw a big fat line in the middle. One side, forgiveness of sins. The other side, whatever that thing is. And you begin to list out the benefits of the thing. And you begin to list out the benefits of what it means to be forgiven by God in Christ. If you do it right, I promise you one thing. This side, 
be full. You'll have to get some more paper. This side might get halfway, maybe three quarters. That'll be it. That'll be it. You know how sometimes I tell you, we've got to think theologically about things, right? Think with our Bibles wide open. Slogan, hey, if your sins are forgiven, you can walk out of here happy. Maybe get some ice cream on the way home to celebrate. And if your, if your wife was a little mad at you this morning, not that mine was. <laughs> she wasn't. <laughs> She's not here, so I feel a little more liberty. You could look at her eyes and say, babe, I know I'm a work in progress. But my sins are forgiven. <laughs> my sins are forgiven. Let's pray. The one thing I need you to do is not tell my wife what I just said. (laughs) Oh, Father, thank you so much for Jesus. There are times when we think about the cross and it brings us to tears because we know ourselves and we know our sin. And then to know that Jesus, in his perfection, went to the cross for our sins, not only is it mind-boggling, but it is life-altering, God. And I pray that grace will be given to us that the way we think and the way we fashion our life as your people will come under the framework that our sins are forgiven. And the way that we treat other Christians to that same end will come under the framework. Their sins are forgiven. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.